We're all gonna die down here, you know. What? What? You see, it's curious. Ted did figure it out. Time travel. And when we get back, we're gonna tell everyone how it's possible, how it's done, what the dangers are. But then why 50 years in the future when this spacecraft encounters a black hole does the computer call it an unknown entry event? Why don't they know? If they don't know, it means we never told anyone. And if we never told anyone, it means we never made it back. Hence, we die down here. <laughs> Hi, welcome to To the 90s and Beyond, the film podcast that covers films of the 1990s as well as newer films that spin off or somehow are related to those films that came out in the 1990s. My name is Vince Leo. I've been doing film reviews since the 1990s, 1996 to be exact. You can find all of my written work at my website, quipster.net, Q-W-I-P-S-T-E-R. Net. While you're there, I do encourage you to check out the other podcast that I do that covers films of the 1980s. It's called Around the World in 80s Movies, and you can find the link to that at my website, quipster.net. Today, I'm going to be getting into the 1998 film called Sphere. It's a film by Barry Levinson, and it is adapting a book that was done that was published in the late 1980s by Michael Crichton. The cast of Sphere includes Dustin Hoffman, Sharon Stone, Samuel L. Jackson, primarily with supporting roles going to Peter Coyote, Liev Schreiber, and Queen Latifah. The director, as I mentioned, is Barry Levinson. The screenplay credited to Paul Atanasio, Stephen Hauser from a screenplay adaptation by Kurt Wimmer. Now, the origin of Sphere in book form, it started, obviously, with Michael Crichton. He began writing it, actually, back in 1969, after the publication of his best-selling novel called The Andromeda Strain. And this was going to be a conceptual follow-up idea to The Andromeda Strain, because he liked having an, a science fiction story where aliens were not resembling humans in any way. Whereas the Andromeda strain was more an exploration into the physical threat to humans in the form of a deadly virus that comes from outer space to Earth, the next intended story would be more of a reflection on how an alien encounter would actually affect humans on a purely psychological level, especially in the way that our, our human primal instinct for fear when we encounter something of the unknown in an extreme situation. Crichton wondered, what would we as humans really do if we were confronted by our first contact with an extraterrestrial intelligence or some object from an intergalactic civilization far more advanced than ours? Crichton began with this conceptual idea, musing that if Charles Darwin in the 19th century sat in front of a Macintosh computer from today, today being the, the 1980s, even somebody as rational and as scientific as Charles Darwin would scream from the room, thinking it was surely witchcraft. 
even if you were to sit down with Charles Darwin and start to try to explain rationally how it all worked, because all of the things that make a Macintosh run are also unknown to him, he wouldn't be able to understand any of your explanations. He would only perceive the Macintosh as this weird rectangular box that displays images of unknown origin and meaning. So if the most intellectual mind from 100 years ago couldn't fathom something that exists today, surely our best scientists today would have a similar experience if they were introduced to something invented 100 years from now. So as a writer, Crichton often had multiple projects going on at once. He would pause on stories whenever he got stuck, and then he would return to them whenever he had some sort of new ideas that would form, if they ever formed. But Crichton had difficulty writing this story because this story had a main object that was beyond explanation to us in our time, which made it hard to explain it in a book form. So he put it aside for a later date. The ultimate idea for Sphere did not get fully formulated until about the early to mid-1980s because Crichton, at that time, he had been growing weary of seeing all of these pie-in-the-sky optimistic takes in science fiction, including the works of Carl Sagan, especially Contact, or even the Steven Spielberg films that imagined contact with aliens as some sort of wonderful thing that would happen to humans. Crichton felt that, in reality, any alien contact would immediately trigger a fear response in humans, and our worst traits would come out rather than our best. Even leading scientists would be woefully unprepared for first alien contact because there's no honest training for dealing with alien encounters. We have no idea what the aliens would really be like. They certainly are not likely to be human in the way that they appear or the way that they try to actually communicate. So Sphere started with this what-if premise that would explore how scientists might honestly react if they were confronted with this powerful and highly advanced object of an alien origin. No matter how sophisticated and learned the scientists are, their reactions would be instinctively primitive. Fear, paranoia, panic, confusion. He imagined that there would be this alien artifact in the shape of a sphere, a perfect sphere, a giant sphere, which had properties that really would not be explained in the story, feeling that no human would be able to ever fully comprehend something of alien origin from just a few hours of exposure to it. This sphere would have a unique ability, an ability to manifest the thoughts and the feelings of sentient beings around it. However, those around it would instinctively project their own fears of it, resulting in a nightmarish reality built on their innermost thoughts, not dissimilar to what you would find in the 1950s film Forbidden Planet with its monster from the id, or perhaps in the novel or film adaptations of Solaris, where things are manifested from the subconscious thoughts of one of the main characters. Sphere was ultimately published in 1987, and the plot of Sphere concerns a team of civilian American scientists that are sent to investigate this 300-year-old spaceship believed to be of alien origin half-buried in a bed of coral on the ocean floor a thousand feet below the surface of the South Pacific waters. Their mission leads them to the U.S. Navy's underwater habitat that has been set up near the site. And inside the ship is this impenetrable silver sphere, at least in the novel form, in the film version, it's gold. This silver sphere is 30 feet in diameter of unknown origin. It seems to influence the humans investigating it. 
But due to storms on the surface, the scientists have no choice but to be in the habitat confronting the strange phenomena manifesting around them. Phenomena created by their internal fears taking forms that are both physical and deadly. Now, the book was not particularly a hot seller at the time in the late 1980s, but Crichton's back catalog did experience massive renewed interest after the success of Jurassic Park as a novel, and then especially in the wake of the film version of Jurassic Park a couple of years later, movie studios began snatching up all of the available Crichton properties, and one included Warner Brothers' adaptation of Crichton's thriller Disclosure that would ultimately be directed by Barry Levinson for a 1994 release. Levinson's production team of uh, Peter Giuliano and Andrew Wall, they were so impressed with how well Disclosure was made and had done, they started inquiring about what other Crichton properties that perhaps Barry Levinson could adapt, and they discovered that Sphere was still available. Despite heavy studio interest for several years, Crichton, though, wasn't keen on Hollywood adapting Sphere because he didn't want to see it degenerate into some sort of poor effects-driven film. However, due to his good working relationship with Levinson on Disclosure, he did acquiesce to releasing the rights to Warner Brothers so that Levinson could direct it. Levinson had not really heard of Sphere before, but he did read Crichton's novel while he was still in pre-production working on Sleepers, and he became very excited about the prospect of directing it. He had always wanted to do science fiction, but he had not found a property that he felt was really in his wheelhouse, but Sphere seemed to be kind of an exception. He wasn't sure if he could pull off some you know, big CG alien monster flick, which is why he avoided the genre, but Sphere was much more geared toward being primarily this psychological drama with this futuristic backdrop. He, Levinson called it Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, except in a science fiction format. Crichton told Levinson that although he did write the first draft of Disclosure for that production, he was not interested in trying to do an adaptation of Sphere. Crichton was feeling creatively drained by all of these adaptations of his work, and he didn't want to get involved too much anymore trying to rewrite or direct from a story that he had created before because he called the experience having the baby too many times. Just the thought of having to take the first 150 pages of Sphere and try to squeeze it into the first 30 minutes of screen time filled him with absolutely no pleasure to do. Instead, he was interested in taking the role of a producer of Sphere, where he could make script suggestions, but outside of providing notes or entertaining story discussions, as a filmmaker himself, Crichton promised he would avoid telling Levinson how to make or direct his film. Crichton had full trust in Levinson to do what was necessary in all capacities because Levinson happened to be also a writer and he also had great story instincts. Now, in the deal for Sphere, Warner acquired two prior adaptation attempts, including one by Kurt Wimmer. Levinson, when he read these two attempts, felt that they didn't really grab him like the novel did because they strayed too far from Crichton's book, and they also favored a lot of technological explanations instead of exploring more characterizations. Levinson felt that whatever happens in the story that is of interest happens to the characters psychologically. That was the real appeal and the real gist of the story, not all of the tech. And Levinson wanted it to be a much more faithful adaptation than these examples. Millions of Crichton fans would be completely disappointed if they went to the film version and it differed substantially from the book. After Levinson's assistant, Stephen Hauser, volunteered to lay out a new story treatment, 
using Crichton's novel and Wimmer's script to try to make it more in line with what Levinson wanted. Levinson read it, he liked it, and he told Hauser to go ahead and write a full draft. After that draft was done, Levinson hired Paul Atanasio, who created Levinson's hit acclaimed TV series Homicide, to polish the dialogue and try to enhance the characterizations. Now, Levinson, as a filmmaker, he's a very meticulous planner. He spends months in pre-production trying to assure that he was going to have a very smooth shooting schedule. He found this especially necessary for Sphere because he'd never worked underwater. And a lot of research had to be done, a lot of testing of camera equipment, etc., to ensure adequate water density and all lighting, not only in the water, but also in the environs. The camera crew needed to be adequately trained so that they knew not only what each scene required, but also to keep downtime minimal. And all of the crew, as well as the actors that would be working in the water, would have to undergo two weeks of training as required for the production to clear insurance requirements in swimming, especially in their dive suits underwater. Levinson said that even though all of this preparation was going on, Preparation actually allows for more spontaneity rather than less when you're actually doing the film because you can start adding scenes and start experimenting in different directions as you go along because the planning kept them ahead or at least on schedule. Levinson was not somebody who usually storyboarded scenes unless necessary, and he wanted that to continue because he wanted actors to feel the freedom to explore their performances and to contribute things that they hadn't planned for that might actually strengthen the overall film. Now, although Levinson had a reputation of delivering his films on time and under budget, there were a lot of recent water-based films like Waterworld and The Abyss and Titanic that had Warner growing gun-shy about the costs and potential delays escalating the overall budget. Warner co-chair and CEO Terry Semmel, he wanted to get in there and trim all of the fat that they could from the budget. He wanted the $85 million budget lowered by about $10 million. He wanted the shooting days lowered from 90 days to 70 In November of 1996, pre-production just straight out paused so that Warner could get in there and determine how to achieve these reductions and also retool the script accordingly. They decided that CG would be used to try to replace some of the more costly practical effects and also that they should replace Industrial Light and Magic with the team of Jeff Oaken and Tom Boland who would assemble a quality team on site of technicians and engineers that would only be there for that particular task so that they didn't have to pay the high overhead costs of ILM's facility and staff operation. Given that they were going to postpone the actual shoot to spring of 1997, Levinson did request that, as they rejiggered things for the leaner production, that he would use the downtime to try to shoot another project that he had ready to go called Wag the Dog. He would start doing that in January of 1997 and do it on a very fast 30-day schedule. Warner was apprehensive, but they did accept his request on condition that Levinson return to complete Sphere before he started editing Wag the Dog. As far as how they were going to handle the underwater action, an open sea shoot was not something that would adequately control the elements in any way, so they decided to look for a giant tank that they could use to try to film this. But Warner's giant tank was currently in use for the production of Batman and Robin, There was a tank in Pinewood Studios that seemed not feasible. Everybody would have to relocate to uh, England. 
there was a tank in Malta, but it was more of a float, floating tank in the Mediterranean, also equally far, and that was barely better than shooting in the open sea. So they decided to search for a place that they could build their own tanks so that they can completely control the water's clarity, the filtration, the temperature. Adam Greenberg, who was assigned as the cinematographer, he had collaborated with Levinson before on his film called Toys. He did lack underwater experience, but he discovered in his research that there was a clever way that he could shoot in a container only seven feet deep that could appear as if they were shooting in an ocean 2,000 feet deep. So they didn't need actually these giant tanks. They could actually do it on a much smaller scale. They ended up securing Mare Island Naval Shipyard. That was a military base in Vallejo, California, where nuclear submarines were once constructed it had just closed in April of 1996. The shipyard contained ample space for doing any building that they wanted, ample parking, and they also had a very strong local labor pool in the area that could work on the film. And it also, as a, as a bonus, it had a proximity to Napa Valley, the wine capital of the United States. Seemed an ideal choice for work and play and would be very attractive to bring in the acting talent. Exterior underwater structures would be done using 1 16th scale miniatures that were done by Grant McCune Design. Meanwhile, the internal habitat set would be a continuous set, mostly enclosed to heighten the sense of claustrophobia for the actors, and so audiences would perceive no escape or place to hide was possible. The camera would follow the actors as they go from room to room without any cuts, but it also introduced a limitation because in addition to the cramped conditions, the set was going to be very difficult to keep lit and it wasn't going to dissipate heat well, which is why they needed to do a lot of testing. The water depth in the 40 foot by 40 foot tanks that they constructed was kept to 26 feet. And that was by design because divers would not have to expend their time with decompression after surfacing. Navy consultants said that diving less than 28 feet avoided the need for all of that decompression. The tanks were built within three giant assembly warehouses, plus there was also one in a different building to house the habitat, basically the enclosed set that the actors would be mostly working in. Levinson, as the director, was not going to get into the water along with the actors and crew, and that was done for efficiency of communication. He would stay in this video village and he would give instructions as he needed by looking on from the monitors and he could see exactly what the cameras were seeing. He could give directions into the helmets of anybody, cast or crew, to move into a different location or to try different things as needed. As far as the cast goes, obviously Dustin Hoffman is in this film. He was the first actor actually signed. Hoffman was somebody who worked with Levinson pretty often. He enjoyed working with Levinson. He habitually asked if Levinson had any parts in any upcoming projects for him. Hoffman would argue that actually the phrase working with Levinson was really wrong. His experience with Levinson was so fun, he considered it more play than work, so he called it playing with Levinson. The main character in Sphere is happens to be a middle-aged man and was a psychologist instead of this, you know, action-based hero. So the part seems tailor-made for somebody like Hoffman. Hoffman hadn't heard of the Crichton novel before, but he did accept the role immediately after hearing the story because he liked the underlying themes. By accepting his role in Sphere, he ended up turning down the role of John Quincy Adams in Steven Spielberg's Amistad to work again here with Levinson for the fourth time for Sphere, although this did push the release date as Hoffman needed to complete work on Mad City for Warner Brothers first. 
Levinson, in addition to being a writer, he also has experience as an actor, and he knows that his actors enjoy having space to grow and to explore. So Hoffman came in with a lot of notes, and he compared the book to the script. He had over 80 pages worth of background information and lines from Crichton's book that happened to be not in the script that could be called upon to enhance everybody's performances if they ever got stuck. And what Hoffman found most interesting from the book that was not really detailed in the script itself is this notion that we continue to spend a lot of money, a lot more resources and time to explore space, outer space, than we ever have with Earth's own oceans, which represent the majority of our planet. We have no clue what might be down in many parts of the ocean. So an alien craft had less of a chance of being discovered buried at the bottom of the deepest part of the ocean than if it were approaching somewhere near Earth in outer space. Albert Brooks was somebody initially courted, but he ended up leaving instead to work on the Sidney Lumet drama called Critical Care. So the astrophysicist role was cast instead with the scuba-certified actor Liev Schreiber. Schreiber wasn't really keen on taking this smaller role, but he felt that he could improvise new lines and try to expand his screen time to being not quite as comparable, but at least as close as possible to being one of the main actors. Laura Dern, Charles Dance, Julian Sands, Joe Montaigne, they were also slotted for various roles earlier on, but they left the production because of the number of delays that caused them to have to leave. Samuel L. Jackson, he was no stranger to Crichton adaptations. Obviously, he was in Jurassic Park. He was an early choice for the role of Harry, the mathematician, but he was too busy with the Long Kiss Goodnight to read the Crichton novel. There was no script at the time for him to read. So the role instead passed to Andre Brower. Andre Brower was a TV star in Levinson's TV show Homicide. However, after the film's postponement, Brower ended up leaving in February of 1997 because his wife, who happened to be a, a co-star of Homicide, Amy Brabson, she was pregnant with her second child and he wanted to be there with his family instead of on location somewhere across the country. Jackson happened to have a background. He was initially a marine biology major in Morehouse College before he changed his uh, major to architecture and then drama. He also happened to be a lifeline science fiction fan, so he was definitely disappointed after he subsequently read and enjoyed the Crichton novel that he had been passed over for Brower. He immediately accepted when he learned that uh, it was offered again to him, and he would especially be working with one of his idols, Dustin Hoffman. Jackson came straight to the set after completing work in Montreal, where he was making the Red Violin. In The Red Violin, he played this antique dealer who was supposed to be around 60, so in order to look a little bit older, he had shaved the middle of his head to kind of be a, a balding man for that role. But rather than wear a wig for Sphere, which would have been kind of a chore to keep on given all of the scenes that he has to do in the water, Jackson instead asked Levinson if he would rather that he completely shave his head. Levinson wasn't sure. He told him to go ahead and try it and see, and if he liked it, he could keep it. If not, they would go with the wig. And Levinson actually liked the look, and Jackson especially liked it because he felt that it shaved about 15 years off of his age, and he actually stayed with that look ever since. Jackson decided to become an avid scuba diver after his experience working on Sphere, learning all of these dive techniques. Although for the last month of the sphere shoot, Jackson would have to leave for Los Angeles for weekends to begin his scheduled shoot working on Quentin Tarantino's Jackie Brown. 
Sharon Stone came to the film after pulling out of Oliver Stone's U-turn over a money dispute. She actually campaigned herself hard to appear in Sphere. She even started calling Levinson while he was at home and telling him she was very much interested and would be perfect to play Beth Halperin in Sphere. She even came over to Levinson's house and would act out the role right there in his living room. She convinced Levinson through her tenacity he became convinced that she had all of the aggression necessary for the role, as well as the underlying vulnerability. And she happened to be naturally a very intellectual and enigmatic personality, which he felt would be perfect for that role. He did initially worry that, you know, somebody as glamorous and beautiful as Sharon Stone was going to be an unlikely pairing with Dustin Hoffman. But he then reconsidered that this actually might add an extra dimension of complexity because it was actually a teacher and student dynamic that went perhaps a little bit too far. Stone took the role after accepting that uh, it would be a lower rate than her usual salary, but she felt that it would be actually be very good for her career. Despite being a, a scuba certified rescue diver herself, uh, up to 80 feet, Stone did underestimate the actual physical demands required for the role, especially in feeling overwhelmed early on in the shoot. She did experience some claustrophobia and difficulty adjusting to the breathing methods in her diving suit, which were a little bit different than scuba. Sometimes she would just scream into her, her microphone that she wanted out immediately and the crew would have to come get her. The crew did end up fitting her with this jet propulsion device so that she could surface quickly whenever she felt panic setting in. There was also this airlock set that had to be filled and emptied with water and that would cause a very startling sudden shift in pressure that Stone particularly found exceedingly unpleasant. See, she started refusing to do any more work in the airlock, multiple takes. She just would not do. Stone also has very bad vision, and that kept her underwater visibility very limited because uh, contact lenses were not really fitted for this kind of work. There was a story in the National Enquirer at the time, so take that with a grain of salt. National Enquirer is not necessarily <laughs> considered... Uh, uh, the most reputable publication, they did report that there was an incident where, where Sharon Stone nearly drowned because she slammed into the sidewall of one of the tanks, and that resulted in Samuel L. Jackson pulling her out and administering mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Stone does deny that this ever happened, but there was some danger, some injuries that actually did occur. Dustin Hoffman was injured when he dove into the tank, and he hit his head on this underwater camera that had not been moved away in time. He would require a hospital visit that gave him 25 stitches just above his hairline, luckily, so it was not quite visible, but his forehead did start to swell up, and it required them to actually film only the back of his head for about a week. In addition to some of the physical demands, Sharon Stone also was a little bit queasy because she was approaching 40 years old and her career she felt dependent on her always looking glamorous and so she requested to the cinematographer adam greenberg that she only be shot from one side like her more appealing side and never be shot from below and she did not want to be shot in any kind of harsh light but greenberg had already planned all of this out. They needed actually harsher light to shoot the environs because it was kind of enclosed and very dark. It made her very apprehensive on the shoot, but after she saw some of the dailies where she actually could still look glamorous, she became much more accepting and confident. 
Now, Samuel Jackson, his problems were not necessarily physical. It was more of feeling awestruck because he was working with Dustin Hoffman. Sometimes he, in the middle of scenes, his mind would drift in self-reflection that he was actually here acting with one of his great idols, Dustin Hoffman. Hoffman would end up teasing Jackson mercilessly whenever this occurred, sometimes pointing out, hey, I, saw, I saw you drifting. You were thinking you were working with Dustin Hoffman again, weren't you? Now, meanwhile, Hoffman and Stone worked very well together, especially in improvising a lot of their scenes. A lot of their dialogue is actually stuff that they produced on the spot. In fact, it was their idea to actually put in a little bit of a background to their characters that they would have a history together as as doctors and patients who had this falling out over something that uh, Norman, that's Hoffman's character, did. Levinson wanted to keep the incident ambiguous, though. He didn't want to dwell too much on what that was about, other than the uh, caused them to have a kind of a tense dynamic, and also paranoia, and a, a case of mistrust that would only get accentuated by the sphere. Levinson also cast Peter Coyote into the film. Uh, he had met Coyote in his social circles and really liked him. He plays the military commander because he felt that Coyote really had a lot of power and intelligence that would be great for that role. And Levinson felt that would be much more interesting in the performance instead of just casting, you know, a stereotypical toughest males military type. Queen Latifah was also scuba certified, so she took on a, a smaller supporting role. Her character would be uh, the first one to actually die in, in the film. And her character was shot to have a, a much more gruesome moment than ended up being in the finished product. She gets surrounded by a group of jellyfish and it ends up causing her demise. They had created this prosthetic head based on Queen Latifah. It would have all of these swollen areas and, and jellyfish would be shown on this prosthetic head to still be attached to her head. And there was going to be a scene where Sharon Stone would pull all of the jellyfish off of her uh, engorged face and the tentacles would be seen coming out of her nostrils and eye sockets in a very gruesome fashion, almost like a a magician continuously pulling out a, a train of handkerchiefs. It was about 10 feet of of tentacles that were stuck inside of the nostrils and eye sockets. And a lot of this was cut from the film because it was a little too gruesome for a PG-13 film. Also next was the use of slime that would that was supposed to be extruding from the bodies of the hagfish that would attack Dustin Hoffman's character. They thought that that was a little too gross as well for audiences. The diving suits, they were very cumbersome. You know, they, they were, uh, with all the gear, about 140 pounds, the backpack, the boots, and the, the helmets and whatnot. So lengthy delays were necessary to set up shots and that resulted in actors having a lot of time for just standing around. They didn't want to surface to have to take off all of that gear and then have all of these people put all of that gear on them again. So they decided to just stay underwater and they actually started taking catnaps underwater. As far as the appearances of the sphere, that was a that was a big topic uh, in pre-production. It would, as I mentioned, it would be done entirely in CG. That was a difficult consideration. Levinson imagined that it would look like a giant ball bearing, but without any door. He didn't want it to resemble a, a mechanical object. He wanted it to be an artifact of mysterious properties and intent, a lot like the monolith that you see in 2001 A Space Odyssey. He wanted it to have a certain mystique, and the mystique would come from reflecting everything in the cargo bay except for the human characters observing it. In addition to the sphere and its properties, he also instructed the effects team that he didn't want any creatures used in the film to be not found in reality. These are supposed to be the manifestations of mature scientists. These are not the manifestations of children prone to flights of fancy. So 
Everything should be grounded in a reality. Audiences also should not know if what they're seeing is real or manifested, which is also a reason to emphasize real creatures. Even the main characters themselves don't know what's real or who they trust or even if they can trust themselves. So it was all very key to keeping everybody guessing. There was going to be a giant squid that was supposed to attack the habitat. It only is shown as a blob on a sonar screen. And the reason why they didn't actually show the squid is because they started watching films of other major films that featured a squid or an octopus attack. They especially keyed in on the TV movie for Peter Benchley's The Beast with all of these flailing tentacles. And, and once Levinson saw that, he said, let's not show the giant squid because any attempts by other films seem to be very unconvincing. And if Levinson himself had no solution for doing it without it looking fake, just like the, all of the other attempts, he didn't want to do it at all because he didn't want anything to look fake to the audience. And that was also in keeping with trying to keep the film in line with Warner's cost-conscious approach anyway. It was going to be a big and expensive effect, and if it wasn't actually going to add to the ambiance of the film, they'd rather just not do it. And Levinson also further rationalized that, that a giant squid was much scarier in the imagination of the audience instead of whatever they could produce with hardware. During the editing phase, Crichton was very delighted about what he was seeing with Sphere. He was very surprised how much humor Levinson and the actors were bringing into the story. After they assembled a rough cut, test screening skewed, though, very negatively, so they had to do some reshoots on the film. It's Christmas 1997 release date. It was going to be the big Warner Brothers release. It ended up delaying the film to the dumping ground of February so they could retool the film in a way that audiences would be much more accepting of. And meanwhile, the delays in production also allowed Levinson to actually complete the post-production on Wag the Dog and get it into theaters so that it could compete for Oscar's consideration, even, even though it kind of went around the, the verbal agreement that he had with Warner Brothers that he was going to do Sphere first before he continued with Wag the Dog. There was an original ending where the survivors were forming a pact to forget the Sphere, even though they couldn't really forget it, denying any knowledge of its awareness or existence to the military or anybody else. Sometimes that original ending is shown on television showings, but in the theatrical release, the pact is shown that it actually launches the sphere into space. They're manifesting the sphere into going back to presumably fly into outer space, perhaps to its world of origin or wherever it was found by the spaceship 300 years in the future. There's a time travel aspect to this film. You have to watch the film to really understand it. Unfortunately, no matter what they did, they could never get the audience to come around on the film. They knew they had probably a film that was going to be a dud even though it had a lot of star power going for it, the subject matter was definitely intriguing, Michael Crichton's name on it. It did fail critically and commercially and only garnered about $70 million in returns worldwide. So it was a, an overall money loser for Warner Brothers, a, a very expensive one at that. Hoffman has gone on to say that his last two films with Barry Levinson didn't really have the kind of character depth that he liked in the scripts, but Levinson, as well as the other actors, as well as him, they were able to transcend the script issues with Wag the Dog. They were not so successful with transcending with Sphere. And although Hoffman did accept the role because he thought working with Levinson was fun, he didn't really have as much fun in the making of Sphere. And this would mark their final collaboration between Levinson and Hoffman in films.
Sphere, it's kind of a bizarre and disappointing misfire for most people. Levinson is combining 2001 A Space Odyssey and The Abyss and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, but he really doesn't pull off the, the kind of sense of wonderment that made those films work so well. He is supposed to be reaching for unimagined heights, trying to awe viewers, but the obvious so-called villain of the piece, the, the imagination of the uh, of the characters, and the ramshackle script elements, they never really fully grip you as an audience. The, the suspense just doesn't seem to be there. This, that sense of wonderment that is required for something like this. Levinson may have claimed he always wanted to do a science fiction film, but it seems that his lack of experience in the genre did end up becoming a liability. Maybe the fact that he didn't want to show a giant squid just because he didn't know how to do it and not have it look silly, that might have been a, a giant red flag as to whether he was up to the task. I think even bigger than those problems, which are substantial, for me, the, I think the, the biggest problem is a lack of identification with the main character of Norman. I don't find Dustin Hoffman's character in this film to be very likable at all. I don't find him funny or charming or even interesting to follow. In fact, I would probably say that about any of the characters in this film. I don't find any of them really compelling. And so for a film that's built on the characters and the psychology between them, if I don't find them interesting or appealing, it's just not interesting as a film. And without all of the science fiction elements going for it and the way that it, it glosses over significant events and these nuances of the implications of their actions, it just falls flat. I don't think Sphere is as bad as its reputation. Like, I don't feel like it's a, it's a bomb. It just seems to be more of a misfire. It's kind of a middling effort. I think if you come into it with low expectations, maybe you'll you'll be a little bit more forgiving because it does have its moments here and there. But I don't think most viewers will come away feeling like it was a delightful surprise. Obviously, there's going to be some exceptions. But I think most people watching it will be intrigued by the premise, but ultimately feel it doesn't deliver on that premise in a substantial way, enough to make it more than a two and a half star film. Two and a half stars on my scale means that I feel that this is a film that had all of the tools and talent to be something that most people would find worthwhile or perhaps even good, but it just never really gels into a satisfying whole. And with all of the production problems and whatnot, it just never really forms the right balance for people who are either into science fiction or adventure films to really feel like it's delivering on those levels. Certainly does not deliver for anybody who's coming into it thinking it's a horror film, not like in the way that Event Horizon is, but two and a half stars is the best. I can give Barry Levinson's take on Sphere. Unfortunately, a missed opportunity, although there are people who see it as a missed opportunity and think that there should be another chance at trying to do this material and do it right. In fact, in 2020, it was announced that uh, Sphere, Crichton's novel, would be adapted actually into uh, an HBO Max series. Westworld's writer and executive producer Denise Tay she was scheduled to be the showrunner with Westworld showrunners Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan serving as the executive producers and, and Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, Team Downey production house also was going to be collaborating on the production. You know, it's already three years since that announcement. It still has not developed. And with Westworld kind of taking a downturn at, at Max, which is what HBO Max is called now, Will we ever see it? I don't know. I don't know if there's a strong enough push to get it to the finish line, but I guess it awaits to be seen whether they do get their act together. 
If you have your own thoughts on Sphere that you want to tell me about, you can write to me. You can find my contact information at my website. It's all there. Gmail is probably the best way, but you can also find my Twitter feed called X nowadays, as well as links to my Facebook page and my Instagram as well. So any of those ways are adequate to get in touch with me, whatever you're most comfortable with. As far as what I'm going to be doing next from the 1990s, well, I will keep it kind of geometric here. We did Sphere, might as well do Cube. Vincenzo Natali's film from 1997, kind of a mystery, horror, science fiction hybrid, much lower budget than Sphere, but uh, it does have a fervent cult following. So definitely worth checking out if you haven't checked that out already. This will actually be a first time watch for me. I'll be intrigued as to how I feel about it after watching it. So, so check out Cube from 1997 if you haven't done so already and you'll be prepared for the review on the next episode. Until then, I want to say thank you everyone for joining me once again as we continue to travel to the 90s and beyond.